You're listening to episode 36 of Fear the Boots interview series. In this interview, we talk with Joe and Keith of Inkwell Ideas. Running time for this episode is one hour and nine minutes. Welcome to Fear the Boot. My name is Dan. This is Brodor. And we got two guests joining us today, which I'm sure you probably guessed by the interview music, or at least you guessed we had a guest, guest a guest. <laughs> Yay, homophones. All right. But anyway, one quick thing. Keep up with Chris Hussey on Twitter, twitter.com slash Fear the Boot. He's still doing those video game giveaways. And once he is done with that, we'll be doing the giveaways on the Battletech dice. I had a couple of people take a look at the photos I posted the last episode. I'm like, you know... I didn't care until I saw those pictures, and now I want these dice. And now, anyone who's in that boat, you understand why I've been having my little mini meltdown with Catalyst for the past month and a half. I am not a Battletech guy, and those dice are killer. They have heft, they're beautiful, the detail is great. They're very, very nice. Yeah, so if you didn't see that picture, look at the show notes or the prior episode, and you'll find it there. And we'll be doing giveaways on at least five sets of them, maybe ten sets of them. So we've got a bunch we're going to be giving away here in a couple of episodes. But we're going to let Chris Hussey get through his giveaways first. Speaking of Battletech, there are two sealed Battletech intro boxes just over your right shoulder. Three, I can see actually. Oh, I don't see the third. Well, the third's not in this room. So, story on that. We had that contest, right, for the giveaway mm-hmm. of the Battletech box sets. And, you know, I'm going to introduce our guests, and I'm going to tell a story, because <laughs> we've got them just sitting there on bench. So, joining us today, we have two gentlemen from Inkwell Ideas, and we're going to talk about who they are and what they do. But let's just get them introduced so they can join the discussion. First off, we have Mr. Joe Wetzel. This is me. This is Joe. And then also the illustrious Keith Curtis. Hey, everybody. Long time friend of those. Is that like a Pee Wee Herman impression? I, I almost said hi, Dr. Nick. Or <laughs> Dr. Nick. Yes, I'm sorry. The Pee Wee Herman had one like that too, but yeah, that is Dr. Nick. And I was just making a Simpsons joke before the show. But anyway, so the story on that. Okay, now these guys can feel like they can talk. We did that giveaway, and after we got the winners, I went out to Catalyst and I put in the orders and said, Hey, send these box sets to these individuals. And they screwed up the order and sent them to me. So then what I did was I'm like, well, wait a minute. I don't know what's going on here. I'll find some use for them, I'm sure. So rather than mess with it, I just got out on Amazon and ordered two copies through Amazon to have sent to these individuals. I'll tell you about number three. because there are three we gave away. Number three was an interesting story. But then Catalyst, after I told them what was going on, they put my orders back into pending. And so I think they may ship them again, which means the people that won the contest now may be getting multiple copies of Battletech. So my only request for these gentlemen is pay it forward, keep one box, take the other one. I don't care who you give it to. Give it to somebody at a gaming shop. Give it to a buddy. Put it in a toy drive for the less fortunate. I don't care. But just pay it forward to somebody. Do you know how much that would have made my life as a youth if I was a part of a program like that and I actually got a Battletech starter box as a gift from some <laughs> random charitable individual? Broder, you were the first person in my entire life I've heard bemoan the fact that you didn't grow up as a poor man. <laughs> oh, no, I grew up poor. I mean, th- those are stories not for this episode. Oh, it's okay. for a bonus episode. Oh, no, we were we were poor, but not poor enough to get gifts from people. And you didn't get Battletech. No, 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 no. That no. would be the gift that keeps on giving. You'd be a wealthy man today if yeah. you played Battletech when you were younger it's, it's the only true privilege let it's, that be a lesson to you <laughs> but so the third one i don't know what the hell to do with this guy i'm looking over the entries right and we have three distinct entries yeah well I mean, we had a bunch of entries we had like 150 200 entries but there's three winners and all of them had their own text and this one specifically said what his favorite mech was and even identified a mech that's not in the books he identified a mech that text designed years ago that actually is the reason for a current rule in Battletech. He designed an ejection mech. I remember yes, the story where been, you had the hun- where you, where you had a small 10-ton mech that could eject out of. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. that's exactly correct. And he picked that as his favorite. Okay, no problem, right? But then I go to look at the account. The account on Twitter is a spam bot. <laughs> and so I'm thinking like, so where did this tweet come from? He must have copied somebody else's, right? It's a spam bot. Spam bots occasionally copy real content as a way of trying to appear like a real person. So I looked through all of the other 150 or 200 entries. Nobody else had mentioned that Mac. This was a completely genuinely unique entry, but it's a spam bot. And so I like contact this person whatever it is and i'm like 
okay, you won. If you give me an address, I'll send you a game. Not a peep from it. And every tweet, every tweet is a spam ad for some, I don't even know what it is, credit card-ish thing. I don't know what the hell. Like, I have no idea how to deal with this. I think that you're discriminating against the artificial intelligence. I guess I am. (laughs) So I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to give this guy or computer or whatever it is a little bit longer to provide me with a mailing address. And then I'm just going to redraw that third entry because I'd like somebody to get the game. But it's like, you know, look, if you're a real human being and you just run a spam Twitter feed for a living, I don't care. Not my problem. If you play Battletech, you're a wonderful person. I'll give you the game. But it was so weird, too, because it's not even a canned mech. You would have to listen to the show to know that mech. You know what this means, Dan? That was like Skynet. Yeah, we're in serious danger. 20 20 years from now, a Terminator is going to have you in its sight. (laughs) He's going to be just about to pull the trigger and say, are you Dan Rapaju? Uh, yes. Thanks for the battle tech. Now run. <laughs> so I, yeah, yeah. And if it's a computer, you know what? I can put all of my bigotries aside for a little bit. If you're an elf or a clanner or an alien or any of the things I hate, if, if, if you're playing battle tech, I'm willing to find our. I'm willing to find some middle ground here, but you got to give me a mailing address. That's just how it works. If you're a computer, I mean, can't you at least do like the computer did in Mass Effect and like come up with some kind of like laundering mailing address just to get stuff to? And you know, if I find you in the back of the Citadel behind somebody's store and you're just talking about BattleTech, it's cool. We'll go our separate ways, like it never happened. <laughs> But I have no idea. I, I this I have nothing in my life that prepared me for this. So anyway, that's not what this show's about. God knows we love Battletech. That's been established over many hundreds of shows. So let's get down to what we are talking about. Today we're talking with two individuals, one of which who's been in contact with this show for a whole host of reasons, uh, which of course is Keith, and then also Joe, who's the Joe. What, what title do you prefer? President, CEO, High uh, Puba, either Global Operations Director. Global Operations Director, so God. (laughs) (laughs) So we're talking to the God of Inkwell Ideas, not to be confused with Inkwell Designs like I did. And I'll put a link to their site in the show notes. These are guys that produce a lot of great stuff. But, Joe, before I sell it, I'm going to give you an opportunity to sell it. Who are you? What do you do? What's Inkwell Ideas all about? Well, I'm Joe Wetzel. I started Inkwell Ideas about uh, 10 years ago officially, but really we got going uh, maybe seven years ago uh, making software that makes uh, GM's jobs easier. Um, Hexographer is probably the best known in the gaming industry. We also have a coat of arms design studio. And then Hexographer has its sister products, Dungeonographer, making dungeons, uh, whereas Hexographer does your world, the large area maps. And Cityographer is the most recent of those, and that uh, allows you to do cities and populates the cities automatically as well, pre-generating all the data for all the buildings or inventories of stores and so forth. And then we also got into dice, uh, where we make our dungeon morph dice, which are um, dice with little uh, maps on each side that kind of will join up and allow you to keep uh, making a never-ending dungeon, if you will, or now there's new ones that do cities and villages as well. And then we've got our card products, which uh, have creature stats for creature decks, and we've got encounter decks, which are decks of cards with mini adventures on each card. And we've also got an NPC's uh, deck of cards. Uh, So that's kind of at a high level, all the stuff that we've got. Did I forget something, Dan? If you did, believe me, we're going to come back to all of this in detail. Because I want to talk about some of these products in detail and specifically about the gaming needs that I feel they fulfill. But if anyone thinks this sounds a little bit familiar, we did interview uh, Joe and Keith on this exact subject several years back. But at the time, Inkwell did not have nearly the offering that they do today in terms of the number of products. And after I caught up with them at Gen Con this year, I felt like this was something we really ought to come back to because there's a lot of stuff in there. So I'll come back to that in a sec. Come back to why yeah, I want to well, talk. I believe that we were. I believe we were focused on world building in that one. Yes, we were specifically focused on world yeah. building. And this episode, I want to talk with you about something a little bit different, which is taking away some of the pain of running a game. And this actually ties in really well to our last episode. But before we get to that. Keith, just for anyone who's not been paying attention at all through the show's run, who are you? What do you do? Where's the bodies buried? Well, I was uh, I was born in a log cabin that uh, my father built. Uh, no, uh, my name is Keith Curtis. I've always been an artist of one kind or another. And about 20 years ago, uh, I decided to uh, start trying to uh, do some freelance stuff for the role-playing game industry. And uh, 
mostly grown by word of mouth, but uh, I have never had a shortage of work since. Uh, I do cartography is probably my main uh, bread and butter, but I also do uh, illustration, logo design, some layout, just about anything that is graphic or printable I've done in the industry. Uh, mostly for uh, mid-level printers, a lot of stuff for uh, the PDF market, but uh, a lot of stuff for print as well. And uh, I got involved with uh, Joe and Inkwell. I think it was uh, for Hexographer, wasn't it? Yeah, was very early on printer. with Hexographer. That's right. Yeah. I think I, o- I answered an open call you made, uh, RPG.net. Yep. The, yep. In the freelancers forum, yeah. And yep. it's been, uh, and it's been the most I got lucky. <laughs> <laughs> it's been the most satisfying business relationship I've had in the industry. I mean, oh, uh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what have you done for me lately? Well, <laughs> <laughs> I haven't done an alien for you in years now. I know. You have somebody else to blame for that because I'm projecting. <laughs> but here's specifically why I wanted to talk to these guys. And I, I guess there's two reasons, one of which is the fact that I love what they do. You know, I like these guys. I like the products they put out per the FTC. We're supposed to be making ethical disclosures now, so I'll go ahead and make it because it's real easy. They have not given me a damn thing for this episode. Uh, For anyone that's ever wondered, Fear the Boot does not accept payments for its episodes. Once in a while, we accept review copies for this episode. There's no review copies even trading hands. So we really do believe in the things that we're saying. There's nothing changing hands behind the scenes. We don't do native advertising, as it's called. But are getting back to the topic at hand here and getting away from the FTC. The episode that we did last time, for anyone that missed it, was Brodor kind of made one of those awkward confessions. As Brodor is As Brodor, yes. It, it's like sitting there in the middle of Thanksgiving dinner, and halfway through the meal, you're like, you know, I really hate turkey. <laughs> and he did that, except what he came out with, you know, sometimes I really freaking hate gaming. And there's certain parts of the gaming experience that are a little bit painful or don't live up to my expectations or become rather rote. This tied right into a thought that I had been having ever since Gen Con when I was fortunate enough to catch up with Keith and Joe. And I say fortunate because I had a mid-sized list of people I wanted to talk to, and I believe they are literally the only individuals I was able to find on that entire list. Everyone else was either not at Gen Con or not in their booths when I went by. You're making me think I missed a party. <laughs> <laughs> but we both missed it, apparently. <laughs> Wherever they were out drinking and whoring, neither of us got to go. So <laughs> those are my number one and number two favorite activities, <laughs> yeah. aside from gaming. Yeah. But what you guys do at Inkwell is you take a lot of the parts of gaming that are not necessarily the most fun parts of gaming. It's the administrative stuff that always comes up in the game, but is not always the most fun part of being a GM. It's that moment when, for some reason, they have to ruin a perfectly good conversation with the tavern keep by asking what his name is. (laughs) Or it's that moment when they say, you know what? Okay, so we're at the, the tavern. How far away is the blacksmith? Because we want to know how far we have to run from the guards to go <laughs> buy the sword to fight. I don't know, whatever. I'm, I'm being nonsensical here. But the point is that there's a lot of things that in gaming either have to be created spontaneously or require simply a certain amount of bookkeeping, depending on the type of game you're running. That's not always the most fun thing to do. And over the past couple of years, since we last interviewed them, Inkwell has come out with some great products for filling those gaps. And... I have actually personally ordered out of my own pocket several of those products that I'm looking forward to getting. And I want to be sure you guys are aware of them as well. Will it solve the problems of your games? I don't know. But at least I want you to be aware of it as a possible tool in your tool chest. So let's start out with the oldest one. Can you guys give me a quick overview of what Hexographer does? Okay, uh, I'll I'll take that one, I suppose. Uh, So Hexographer um, specializes in making a map. Uh, in the style of your classic Mistara icons uh, from the World of Grey, or rather, yeah, the Mistara set. And then there's also icons for uh, World of Greyhawk. And, and if you like making maps in those two styles, it's something where a lot of reviewers, you can look up reviews of Hexographer and you can see people saying, not me, saying, you know, hey, I took 20 minutes and I had the basics of a map. And then I took another hour to fill in the details of labeling all these things. And, and I was done. 
Um, and so that's what it's about. It's got a couple of built-in generators as well. There's a, a built-in generator from scratch that will do everything for you. Uh, there's a generator to do an ICA sehedral uh, world map as well. And then there's um, the one I, I think is kind of coolest is there's a, a terrain wizard, which is kind of a, a nearest neighbor. So you can just sketch in that I've got a mountain range here and I've got a forest over here and stuff like that. And then it will just fill the map in and then you add the details. Yeah, and that's one of the ones that first caught my attention with Hexographer is if you're doing a map, and let's say it's got a 1,000 hexes on it, mm-hmm. which really, if you look at it in terms of map, is actually not that many hexes. Yeah. But you have a 1,000 hexes on it. Having to click and fill in each one of those by hand is a real bitch. But one of the great things that Hexographer does is you can like take the water tool and say, well, I generally want an ocean over here. And you sort of kind of hold down the left mouse button and sweep up and down, and it paints, you know, a few dozen ocean squares generally where you were waving the mouse pointer. And you say, I want land over here and kind of a mountain range through here. And then you click that terrain wizard, and it fills it out. It actually draws in the full ocean and draws in the full landscape, and it attempts to extrapolate what you had out into a completed map, which... I mean, if you think about it, at least for me, when I'm designing a map, that's 99% of what I wanted anyway. And then I just go back and say, okay, I specifically want a city here or a castle there. But exactly which hex the forest ends on was really never a big deal to me to begin with. Mm-hmm. I actually just started a 5th edition game in my own homebrew world. And I yeah. and I, I drew out by hand with, you know markers and colored pencils i made this map for it and then in show prep for today i went to your website and looked at everything i was like man son of a bitch where was this where was this two weeks ago (laughs) and then you guys and then you guys also have icon packs right for other settings that's primarily with cityographer uh the 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 built-in icons for hexographer cover many different genres where you've got some city icon you know they're so they're so zoomed out they're so basic that that they cover Yeah, they're generic enough. Uh, whereas with cityographer, that's where you get into buildings, uh, where where Keith can certainly tell you the details of of making something Western versus making it modern versus making it medieval. I know it works though because I used hexographer for an overworld map for a BattleTech campaign, and uh, it worked perfectly for that. But let's talk about cityographer. This is one of your guys' newer things. Give me the overview pitch on Cityographer because I love what it does. And I wonder if you could also talk a little bit about the features that you have planned for it. Okay. Well, Cityographer lets you make a a map of a city, obviously, in kind of three different ways. You can do it uh, by hand, where you hand place every road, hand place every building if you want to. And then secondly, you can do it on the opposite end of the spectrum. You can just give it four or five parameters, whether or not you want a, a river, whether or not you want a town wall, whether uh, what the size of the population is. And it will generate the whole city on that. And everything is tweakable. You know, After it's done generating, and it takes, and you can see that. The, the streets appear almost immediately, and then you'll see it adding a few buildings, you know, 10, 20 buildings at a time over the course of maybe two minutes. And then it's done with that, and then everything can be moved around and, and tweaked, and you can add more buildings or take streets away, add more streets. And then there's a hybrid mode, which kind of uh, walks you through the process where you kind of say, okay, build me first two major roads, which are going to serve as the intersection point in the center of my city. And then build me the street network, and you give it some parameters for that. Uh, give me a town wall and it will do that for you. And, and, and then uh, finally your, your buildings. And the cool thing is with the buildings, no matter how you, you place them, whether you're doing them kind of all auto-generated or hand-placing each one or hand-placing them after the fact, all the buildings, they're generating data for you based off of XML files uh, that we have built in as well as some additional ones for other genres that you can, you can get off of our website. And so it'll come up with the inn, it'll give you the price list, it'll tell you the name of the innkeep, it'll tell you the cook's name, and a couple of personality quirks about them. Um, it'll give you, if it's just a house, it'll give you who the residents are. If it's the armor smith, it'll tell you, you know, how much all of the armor is, how much inventory they have, and so forth. And all those things can be edited. If you don't like the default settings, you can regenerate it. You can, uh, if, you wanna, if you don't like any of that particular building, you can regenerate the building, or you can just hand ch- change an individual item if you want to. And that's a great way to stick it to your players because they walk around the town and never go in there. You'd be like, you know what? I only spent 15 minutes generating it anyway. <laughs> but all right. So I, I do want to define something there real quick for anyone who's not technically inclined. Uh, Joe mentioned an XML file. What an XML file is, 
it's a portable data format. Okay, well, well let me explain in layman's terms what that means. I'm gonna... Okay, good. Because for the three people listening and myself that didn't know what he was talking about, yeah. I greatly okay. appreciate it. So, you know, if I send you like a document file, something that ends in doc or docx, you know that this is going to be a word processing document and you're going to be able to open this and Let's read this. Let's assume that I do know that. Okay. So, MS Word or Google Documents, or OpenOffice, right. or God forbid, Lotus, or whatever it is you have, you can open up this file and read it, right? It's a file that you can read in a whole bunch of different places in a whole bunch of different ways, all right? So it's something you could use anywhere. Well, XML is kind of like that for your computer. It's a set of information or set of data. So like, for example, I could take a whole list of like names and I could put it in an XML document. And then if I write a program that's supposed to, in this case, randomly generate a town, it could go to that XML file and read it just fine because it's this really generic format for your computer. It's not meant for a human to read, but your computer can read it and say, oh, well, I know what to do with this. This is a name, so I know how to use it, and this is a price list, and I know what to do with it. It's got the structure built in. Right, exactly. And so just as you could plug in the default one, you could just as easily grab a base data set that's meant like think of the same way that like if I gave you a boilerplate document, here's a contract in MS Word and here's a living will and here's a will and you just need to plug in your name and stuff and then print it out and you're good to go. Well, imagine that for your computer. And that's kind of what XML is. You're saying, hey, I'm going to give you this running start and I want you to use this data when you're making my stuff. So if you instead of a fantasy town, you want to build a sci-fi town or instead of swords or selling laser guns. A different XML document would give it the ability to think differently or to come up with different data. Gotcha. So then what are the odds then, for example, if I build four or five different towns, what are the odds that Cooter is going to be the name of the blacksmith in this town? And then the third town that I build, coincidentally, Cooter is also the blacksmith there. Yeah, I'd, I'd have to go back and look at the uh, the data file. But off the top of my head, you know, we took probably... 200 names for each of several different ethnicities, if you will, German, English, but then also Elvin or whatever. You've got about 200 or so first names and 200 or so last names, and then we put them together. So you might have a Cooter, but this one might be Cooter Smith versus Cooter Jones. Well, I guess that makes a certain amount of sense. It's not like names or, I mean, what you're the third or fourth Mike we've had on this show. I mean, we call you Brodor, but... Yeah, Cooter's a common name in fantasy worlds. Okay, <laughs> if you say so. At least in Hazard County. <laughs> <laughs> Amongst elves, it's Cooter Broadleaf, but... <laughs> well, and, and the, the thing that I think is fascinating about this product, or with the company, actually, is that they serve two different important facets of game mastering. Preparation and procrastination. Yes. Because on the, on the, no, I'm serious. On the front end, you have hexographer, cityographer, dungeonographer, where when I'm preparing the game, it does a lot of the, it does a lot of the heavy lifting for me so I can conserve my time writing plot, etc. Conversely, if I don't prepare for the game, I can grab a variety of your other products and actually run the game on the fly. Yeah, let's talk about the cards, the dice. Do you guys happen to have, because I was hoping to have them in time, but they've not yet arrived since the Labor Day holiday. Uh, do you guys happen to have the encounter deck or the NPC deck or one of those handy? I made sure I grabbed a couple of things with me, yeah. Outstanding. Okay, so let's talk about these decks. So on Fear the Boot, one of the things that we have suggested as a tool for game masters, if they tend to get caught flat-footed a lot by their players, is it doesn't hurt to have flashcards or a list or an Excel document or whatever ready to go that has a bunch of things that you can grab real quick. So if they ask you, well, we walk into the starport what's the name of the attending technician and what's he or she look like and what's their disposition and suddenly you need this information but maybe you're just not good at coming up with that on the fly or, or you're just tapped out but if you have a stack of three by five note cards or something where you can grab one real quick and it's got you know a name a short personality a short physical description you're good to go and obviously you can do something similar with plot points if they run way off the rails and you're not prepared, grab a flashcard that's got a plot point on it. And this is something that we've been espousing for years. And then I come to find out that, you know, within the relatively recent past, 
over at Inkwell, they have actually made decks of cards like this. So you can use them apart from your own or in addition to your own. And you've got several of these sets. So let's work through them one at a time. Let's start with the simplest ones first. Your first ones is you have your monster cards. Is that what you call yep. them? Yeah, your monster cards. The name of the products are uh, creature decks. But creature yes, decks. They are, they are monster cards. And I know you've got several different varieties oh, yeah. of them. You have like humanoids, you have outsiders and extraplanar creatures and yep. wildlife. And I know you have a bunch of different decks. Shuffle them all together, use them how you want. And I believe you also have them statted in what? They're statted for D20. They're statted for Fate. Pathfinder. First edition D&D, if you will, uh, with Labyrinth Lord, Retro Clone Rules, Fate, Dungeon World, and then we have a system-neutral set that is kind of uh, just ecology information, which kind of I see them used as knowledge check cards. And so there's uh, five different systems, if you will, including the system-neutral ones, and then there's uh, five decks uh, of each, although with the system-neutral, we actually did a sixth deck recently, which will get ported to the other system shortly. All right, so let's, that's a pretty simple one. Let's move on to the next one, which is the encounter decks. Tell me about the encounter decks. I was wondering if you could like read one or two of them for me or just read okay. a little clips off of them or something. Okay. Uh, so the encounter decks kind of evolved over time. We did two decks two years ago. Um, and with those, one side is an adventure outline, and it gives you some background information for the GM, followed by a couple ways to get the party involved, a few encounter ideas, and a couple of follow-up things to think about, what uh, repercussions, if you will. And then the other side of the card is uh, a map. And in the first two decks, uh, we, the map wasn't really tied to the adventure that's on the same card. Uh, the idea is what you would just pull more cards whenever you need a map. So if you need a map for a cavern complex, draw a couple of cards and you get a cavern eventually. And then draw another couple of cards when you need an inn or a tomb or whatever the case might be. And then uh, with deck three, though, we did tie the map to the adventure that's on the other side. And in, in that case, the map does go with the adventure on these, but you can always draw more cards because you might need a second map uh, because you might have a second encounter location. So just for a sample, and incidentally, anyone's listening to this, if you go to Inkwell Ideas or if you go to Drive Through RPG, you can find these products, you can find samples, you can find like on Inkwell Ideas, I know they've got demo videos for Hexographer and Cityographer and such. So you can check out a lot of this stuff, at least get a sample completely free. But just so people have some idea we're talking about, because you grab all those encounter cards and I, yeah, you don't have to read the whole thing, but maybe just kind of read a few choice parts off of it, just to give people some idea of what's on these cards. Yeah, sure. Uh, there's one uh, one of the cards that I happen to be looking at is uh, called Dispose of Properly, so it gives you a little bit of a title. In this case, it's got a science fantasy bit of a theme. The, the, the Encounter Deck 3, we also gave them two main uh, genres or subgenres, if you will, Swords and Sorcery and Science Fantasy, and the cards are roughly split equally between those. And so in this case, we've got a monster evolved uh, from an old garbage dump. Uh, maybe there's some potions put in, put in there. Maybe there's been some uh, uh, other magic items. Uh, some experiment went wrong, and it evolved into a huge uh, monster that's approaching the city. Um, so getting the party involved, you know, the party might spot blob of trash coming towards uh, towards the city as they're traveling past it, or they might be in town and they're conscripted uh, by the by the town guard. Uh, so there's two ways to get the party involved. Creature comes closer, and then there's no obvious way to defeat it. Maybe there's some special defenses that need to overcome. Um, maybe the the PCs adjust to that, and then they find out, oh, actually different parts of the monster have different defenses or different special abilities, and so the creature is able to get further into the city. And another thing is that the creature, if it splits up, it becomes more creatures. And then, um, like I said, so then there's some follow-up ideas um, where the trash needs to be all cleaned up, and now there's new rules that need to be put in place uh, disposing of uh, hazardous waste. Another one, just to be real quick about another one, but you've got uh, uh, another science fantasy thing where you've got a joyride by a couple of kids. They find their way into an old tower, which or an old missile, missile silo, which happens to, to house a mech. And so these kids make off with the mech, and they're causing all sorts of havoc, and it's up to the PCs to kind of corner it and stop that people from uh, uh, being hurt. All of my solutions to that problem are terrible. <laughs> See, when, when, when you said, I, I picked that second one for you. <laughs> yeah. when, when you said joyride and missile silo, I was like envisioning Slim Pickens, like these two teenage kids <laughs> on, on, you know, on the tip of a nuclear warhead, you know, getting rocketed into space. Uh, one of the things I liked particularly about the uh, third set, the one that just came out for Gen Con, was the, uh, the concept of where to go from there. Because 
you know, if, if you're using this for ideas, I mean, it's great to get the people involved, but just to have some place you can go right after that, I thought was a really cool, cool idea. And they're all really creative uh, adventure seeds. Yeah, and I think there's also a certain portability or transferability to them because like the one that you gave on the, the trash pile, well, it doesn't have to be a magic potion. What if it's an alien intelligence that's trying to reassemble the trash a la like eight millimeter or something like that, you know, to do something more useful or, I mean, there's any number of ways you can go with what motivated something to coalesce there. See, just the name alone, just the concept alone of, of a, a disposal problem. Like, I want to run a whole Dungeon World con game where that's your job, is that you're low-level <laughs> maintenance guys, right? And so these powerful wizards, they keep making all these jacked-up experiments that may or may not be failures that you have to clean up. So everybody's via, flesh golems you know, and shambling yeah, mounds. Or, yeah. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, Odiugs and Mops, that's what we do. <laughs> Odiugs and Mops. John and I, no, I'm not even going to tell you, we have this great <laughs> adventure module we want to put out as a follow-up to Blood Moon Goblins. It has nothing to do with goblins, but uh, we'll come back to that later. So, your other deck, the yes. third one that I want to get to. There, yeah, there's a third and a half, because there's one that's kind of related to the dungeon dice. But the next one, and this one just thrills me because this is the first place that we recommended using flashcard is you now have an NPC deck. Yes. And, uh, I can't tell you how many people after they saw the, uh, the, the prior creature decks and, and the, uh, encounter decks at, at, at the prior years, Gen Con were coming to us and said, you need to do an NPC deck. In which case I'm like, well, Pathfinder has their face cards. And apparently though, people still wanted to see a different, um, spin on it. And so in, in our case, we give you a, a nice portrait of a character. Um, and then on the back, we give you a name and just the bare minimum kind of D&D-ish stats, if you will, the race, the level, class, alignment, and then the, the six stats, strength, dex, and so on, and then AC and hit points. So you, you just the top two lines cover that. No matter what game system you're playing, you can uh, convert it to that. Most people can. So uh, then, then the rest of the card is all about personality and quirks and stuff. And you can use this as much as it is as you want, or you can just use it for the picture or s- something in between. So then the last set of items, well, I shouldn't say the last, because you actually have a couple of things that we've not talked about. I guess we can hit those here real quick. You have a coat of arms designer. Yep. I don't know that I would personally get a lot of mileage out of it, but some people do get pretty deep into their fantasy worlds. So go ahead and give us the, the high view of that one real quick, and then we'll talk about the dungeon stuff. Sure. Yeah, the coat of arms kind of has multiple audiences. And yeah, I get what you're saying, where uh, in a lot of cases, you know, you've got a character, maybe you've got a knight or some sort of, you know, you're, you're stalking the NPCs of your um, uh, of your game world. And so you want to have a couple of them that have coats of arms, the kings and so forth. Um, so you can use that tool um, to make that. In fact, it's got a free version. Actually, all the software has free versions, so you can try them all out. Um, they all have, you know, some limitations, but for the most part, it's pretty generous what you can do in the free version. And there you've got a couple hundred different symbols to choose from and you can partition the 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 shield so that it's a cross or that it's um partition per bend per bar and so forth and uh i know you know a lot of heralds actually use it in the sca a lot of those folks like to like to have something that can uh, has many different choices for symbols and is easy to work with uh so they'll they'll work with it um as well as you know there are some historical coat of arms heraldry people uh who are into into the tool and use it as well uh, bruce Hurd uh, of uh, mistara of the original D, if you will um uses it for his kaladar setting where he made all the symbols of the gods w- with it so let's talk about one more thing product-wise, and then I've got some related questions. They're not product-oriented questions per se. But then the next thing that you have is a series of dungeon designing aids in the form of the dungeon dice and the dungeon cards. I don't think I got the product name right there on the second one. Dungeon Morph. Dungeon Dungeon Morph Morph cards and Dungeon Morph dice. Dungeon Morph cards and Dungeon Morph dice. When we record these episodes, the computer that we do all the recording on is behind me. And so as a result, I'm always running a bit blind. I don't have any of my references <laughs> in front of me. And I can't bring out my phone because the problem is that the phone, it's okay when it's on Wi-Fi, but every time it attempts to sync up to a cell tower, it will actually create a pretty substantial amount of feedback on the mics. Well, that's why in these shows, we're so many times running blind. where like, we should have this information. And the people at home are always correcting us or whatever and the reason that's happening is because we can't fact check ourselves we can't google it on the spot to get it uh, right we have all 
the time in the world to find your flaws. I know. That's exactly what happens. <laughs> so then you guys go back and listen to it, and you've got, yeah, you're sitting there on the subway, and you've got your phone in your hand, or you're at work listening to it on your desktop PC, and you guys have Google and the ability to catch us and nail us on everything we get wrong but we're just flying off memory when we do this so okay so the dungeon morph stuff so if somebody is into a dungeon type game or it's even not a heavily dungeon crawl ish game but just has a moment where they go into the abandoned temple or something like that let's talk about the dungeon morph dice and the dungeon morph cards and like i said i have some not quite product related questions that i want to run through with you here but Talk to me about the Dungeon Morph stuff. Okay. Uh, so Dungeon Morphs uh, started 2011 now. So, yeah, three and a half, four years ago. So with the Dungeon Morphs, uh, it's the idea is Dyson Logos was out there putting together his uh, Dungeon Geomorphs where he has that design. It's a 10 by 10 grid, if you will. Um, and each side has two entrances or two corridors evenly spaced out at the same place on each side. And this way here, you can join any two of those designs. And so he and a number of other folks were uh, working on those uh, for a little while. And I saw them and I was like, oh, these are kind of cool. Let me see. Uh, what could, Oh, boy, maybe we could put these on dice. Let me put together a Kickstarter because I think that would be kind of cool. And this was 2011. And, you know, it was my first experience. Well, I, I had ordered one thing through Kickstarter. I backed one or two projects through Kickstarter at, the point, but, at that point. But um, it was still new. And so got that up there and I, and my plan was to get a laser cutter and to and to do them with a laser cutter myself and um just i would do, get a laser cutter just for the sake of having a laser cutter <laughs> and i would just walk around cutting things and people with a laser yeah, no doubt i've got 10 fingers and 10 toes exactly <laughs> and i don't know how many friends where we're running at 20 apiece yeah i honestly i'd never get any dice made i'm just telling you right there i would get nothing done <laughs> You but, need a bumper sticker that says, ask me about my laser cutter. <laughs> <laughs> so I actually had ordered one and I was tinkering around with it. And I was like, I'm not going to be able to do this in a timely way and get the quality I want. So then I started reaching out to some of the custom dice manufacturers and um, kind of got a quote back from a few different ones. And the best uh, kind of price quality break was uh, with Q Workshop. So Q Workshop made us uh, our initial run of the dice. But along the way, I thought, oh, well, we could also do cards and deal out a dungeon in addition to kind of randomly rolling a dungeon. Because the core concept with rolling the dungeon is you roll a few of them, push them together, all the corridors line up, and you've got a continuous dungeon. And so the cards bring that same concept to trading cards, and you can just kind of uh, deal them out, and they're square cards, and uh, you can make a, a never-ending dungeon or cavern that way. So that's all done pretty well. And then uh, about a year ago, a year and a half ago, they um, upgraded their machinery, and they got better quality results uh, with the new machinery on, on dice. And so we kind of revised them and kind of gave them a prettier pattern to them and so forth. And um, so we, we did those with the original dice where we kind of revised them all. There's three sets originally. Um, there's two dungeon sets and a cavern set. And then I thought, well, gee, you know, a lot of people are asking me about cities and stuff. And, you know, I think we could figure out a way or finally it clicked for me a way to, to kind of make the make them look good as cities. And so we took the same concept and now we have a set of cities where you have roads that line up on each edge of each design. And so there's three sets of, of dice um, that are one cities, another is ruins, and another is um, uh, villages. And then there's a deck of cards that has all three of those sets of designs as well. Taking this in a somewhat different direction, Joe, what kind of games are you actually playing right now? Like, <laughs> like what is your, what's your role-playing game CV? Uh, role-playing game CV for me, let's see, started like many of us when I was a preteen, if you will, um, and played in you know, my weekly group through all of high school and probably two groups through high school, actually. And then college had a group there that I was playing with on, a, on an almost le weekly basis. Ever since, continued to play in different groups where I, you know, I've moved around a little bit. I went to college in a different city, went to and started working in a different city from that and so forth. But, you know, I had a big, long break until about six months ago where it was like maybe I'd be playing once every six weeks because of kids. Now kids are older and have kind of we've, we found all the other dads in the group found a time that works for all of us. And so we're back into a weekly group as well with that. Um, and now I'm actually looking at, at doing a second group at some point in the near future. So, 
So what's your poison? Primarily D&D these days. We're, we're doing a fifth edition campaign. We did Pathfinder before that, but I've done a good bit of Champions in college, did some Torg in college, did a lot of Star Wars D6 in high school, and tinkered around with a little bit of this and that. I've got my shelves and <laughs> have plenty of different game systems over here. Have you played any of the Star Wars systems since the D6? You've played like D20, D20 Revised, <sighs> Saga, or the Fantasy Flight one. I don't know. Keith, upgrade? <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> I don't know if we can actually tell that story. Yeah, I probably uh, so there was a There was a bad Star Wars D6 experience recently. Uh, let's see. So with the Star Wars stuff, I did play, um, I, I did play a Saga Edition game at a couple of cons, but beyond, I haven't tinkered with the, with the newer system. Yeah, the Fantasy Flight one, I, I played a game of it with one of our other hosts, John, and a couple other guys and, and girls. And it struck me like everything else from Fantasy Flight. It works well. It's a beautiful game, but it is incredibly over-engineered. Okay. <laughs> I mean, if you can picture a Fantasy Flight board game and all of its same beauties and problems carried over into a role-playing game, they found a way to do it. This opinion does not reflect the opinions of Fear Dude, <laughs> but Fantasy Flight is the Michael Bay of gaming. I don't disagree with <laughs> it that. Is, it is so big and beautiful and unnecessary. Yes. But, you know, it works. I mean, it's not crap. I don't mean to express that at all. The Fantasy Flight game that we played, I really enjoyed. But it's just like everything was so unnecessarily complex and over-engineered and, yeah, giant and outsized and whatever. So I, just I, based on that, though, has anybody come out with a streamlined rule set then? Uh, this is Fantasy Flight. If they have, it's been a third-party thing. Yeah, that, no, that's what I mean. I mean, some some independent kind of people that say, you know, here's the rules that are really important, and, and, and we figured out how to you know, toss this and toss that, and anyway. I, not that I've seen, but to be honest, I also haven't gone looking, because I know if Fantasy Flight was to add onto their game, all they would really do is stick in a U-Haul truck full of additional books and counters <laughs> and custom dice and everything else that you would have to get. I mean, that look, I love Arkham Horror. Arkham Horror is Fantasy Flight, right? That's, yes, yeah, okay. that's true. I love, I love Arkham Horror, but holy crap, if it doesn't take three hours to set up, three hours to tear down, and an Oklahoma land rush to even set up the game, to have sufficient <laughs> space. I, I don't. What kind of table do they think people play on? I I've mean, never made it to the end of a game. It's always been okay. This is probably what would happen if we had another three hours. We got to we got to yeah. hold up. <laughs> exactly. It, you know, some people have that kind of life cycle where it's like, you know, I don't do laundry. I just wear it and then throw it out. I think that's kind of how Fantasy Flight was meant to work. You buy the game, you set it up, you play it. And if you want enough time to finish the game, there's no time to put it away. And if you've got kids, cats, dogs, forget about it. You might as well pretty much just tilt the table upward and have a trash can on the other end and go out and buy another one the next time you want to play it. <laughs> and maybe that's their business model. It's, it's the jigsaw puzzle mentality. You need a room where you keep the board set up and you can come back to it next week or next time you have the you know time for everybody. To yeah, it, it is. And so I've got to put the glass over the top and keep all the pieces where they are. Yes. And their boxes really ought to say like, you know, Arkham Horror, 10,000 pieces, just like a puzzle does. And you'd have some idea of what you're getting into. Uh, so among gamers, and I'm sure that you guys know these gamers as well. But there are those gamers that they want the game that is the job, right? It's the experience. We're going to sit down and we're going to play Twilight Imperium Fantasy Flight. We're going to play a game <laughs> that takes us two hours to set up and takes us eight hours to play. And to someone, that's fun. I'm not that guy. Right. Yeah. Well, and the way that I have, I just actually invented, this is a portmanteau. Okay, oh, so all right, I got one of those uh, just for you, Brodor. I love them. But I came up with a word in the course of this discussion. Actually, it was prior to us recording that I think describes the same phenomenon from two angles, which is jobby. This is when <laughs> your hobby becomes a job or your job becomes a hobby. <laughs> and we were talking about this because, Joe, you were talking about how up to this point, Inkwell has been something that's been a business, but it's been a side business, and now you're preparing to go full-time with it. 
And the way that I classify it, and a lot of people in the role-playing industry are like this. I mean, this is not by any stretch of the imagination unique to Joe. A lot of people that are in the role-playing industry, the role-playing industry is not their only gig. In many cases, not their primary gig. But role-playing games become their jobby. It's more than a hobby, but it's not quite a job yet. Fear the Boot is totally a jobby. But there are people that go the opposite angle. And this is Fantasy Flight, right? Where you want to have some fun, but you better block out a week and hope they're offering an hourly rate to be able to fit this into your life. (laughs) I'm a professional Arkham Horror player. (laughs) I love Arkham Horror. I'm not, and I love Fantasy Flight in general. For anyone that thinks I'm bagging on Fantasy Flight, I'm not. I'm just calling a spade a spade here, you know? I mean, a diamond is just so much carbon, and it's kind of the same thing here. That's what it is. I I would love to tell you something else, but it's not. It's great. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. I love Fantasy Flight stuff. I really do. But that's exactly what it is. And, you know, Joe, one of the things I'm curious about, do you use your own products in your campaigns? Or since I, I was curious, or is your group so familiar with your stuff that there's no point in using it? Well, they've, they've seen it all. Yeah, so it, it depends on the product. Yeah, you you could run into some of that with uh, with the cards, but you know, even with the adventure ideas, you know, I don't I don't have them all memorized. Even if I was somewhat familiar, you know, you twist a thing here and there, and and you've got something different. So um, that hasn't been a problem. But yeah, definitely, uh, you know, we use uh, Google Hangout kind of thing for our game sessions now, since we've got you know we have a couple of people who are in different states. Um, and there we'll just have uh, somebody running Dungeonographer in particular and sharing that app, and then they'll just be revealing the map as as we progress through things. So that's typically what we do there. So if you'll please forgive my ignorance, but for the Dungeon Dice, is there a uh, like a tablet app for that? You know, there have been a couple of people who have talked to me about doing something with it, but we don't have a tablet app for it. We do have a font. Right. So you can actually install a font <laughs> and you can put it in your word processor. Instead of getting a letter A, you'll get a dungeon that looks one shape versus a letter S. You'll get a different shape dungeon. So you're going to make the next Google logo. And, <laughs> and you know, though you're a Java developer, you should totally make apps for the card decks, you know, the encounters, the NPCs, for the dungeon tiles. I mean, you're a Java developer. This is a match made in heaven. Well, cause what uh, yeah, I- well, actually, all the cards are laid out by a custom Java program. Uh, so I, you know, I have like, again, talking about XML files, I, I have a couple of data files with all the stats and information for each creature or person or adventure. And I can give it uh, a, another data file with the uh, locations of pictures and so forth. And there, there's a program that marries all that together and spits out a PDF of the cards. And, and then I upload that to drive through and then also make an, a, a for the print and also make a, a version for a print it yourself and, and we're good to go. But yes. And then when you're talking about an app, yes, there is half of an Android app that is a monster uh, tracker type thing. And uh, we'll see if I prioritize working on that versus any of the other apps that I'm working on. <laughs> <laughs> There's always, uh, always something, whether it's enhancements to any of the existing software programs, something new or um, another similar program to those or, or a new app that's, Kind of something completely brand new. Yeah. All right. Confession time. We're going to go around here. Excellent. My favorite. So on this podcast, on and off, probably every one of us and certainly some of us all the time talk about how role playing, you know, it's all about the experience. It's about the game, the abstract, you know, if Chad was here, you know, hurum, hurum, blow your products out your ass. It's just about what I make up on the fly, which I actually lifted from some Korean movie that nobody watches <laughs> because it's terrible and I like because it's obscure. But look, we role players, generally speaking, we like our products. We like stuff, right? Good, bad, and different. That's just the reality. And sometimes we spend money on games we know we're never going to play on things we really didn't need. And I think the ultimate, I mean, the let them eat cake of our hobby is something called the Sultan. If you don't know what the Sultan is, I'll link this off the show notes if I can find it. Are you talking about the Geek Chic table? Yes. Oh, good Lord and butter. (laughs) It's like $12,000, no joke. Something to that effect. Once again, don't have Google in front of me. But it's 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 way too much. It's some number of many thousands of dollars. It's not like two thousand. It's like ten, twelve thousand dollars. I, if I'm not mistaken, some of their tables are in the neighborhood of twenty k. Yeah, and it is. They are really nice tables. 
if you can convince me that any table on the face of the earth without historical significance is worth ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars, you could convince me it's theirs. And all of us probably now I don't have a salt. I don't have anything by the geek chic table thingy. I, I do. Do you really? Yeah. You do. You don't have the Sultan, do you? No, I have a GM's valet. One of my uh, <laughs> one. So I I used to game master for money, and <laughs> and and one. You of did the, say it was confession time, Dan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we actually did an episode about it a long time ago before I was an actual host. A- anyway, one of the guys that I game master for is independently wealthy, and I used to game master for his group for money. And we became friends, long story short, as a gift one year, he bought me a $1,300 GM's valet. (laughs) So this is the uh, Christmas of 2014. I just got it about a month ago. (laughs) It's it's so beautiful. I love it. So here's, okay, so that may be the answer, because this is going to be my question, is for everyone here, what's the whale? What's that thing you bought that cost way too much money and you didn't need, but damn it, you needed it. And so you had to get it. And mine in dollar amount won't top anybody, but in terms of just peculiarity, might trump. But I'm curious. So is yours the $1,300? What is a GM Valet? What is what is that even? So it's almost like a writing desk. Okay. okay? It's this, uh, it's, it's a beautiful set of drawers um it's got some shelves in it basically at the bottom but the top of it folds down and it has these two compartments where you can put the hanging metal clipped file folders yeah so you've got two displays for that it's got these little latches on the side so i've got one one little thing that that hangs off the side that holds my dice i have another thing that hands off hangs off the side that holds a beverage which for me is always going to be a beer yeah and then you've got these little compartments on the inside so i'm gonna like i'm gonna put my pencils here and oh i'm gonna slide these little things out to make more room and put some miniatures in the table and what have you put heat in this drawer yeah so so which in which drawer has my gun in it but so at my game table, right? So I'm sitting at it long ways, right? I'm sitting at the head of the table. Players are down on, on, on the various sides and on the opposite end of me. But then to my right, I have the GM's valet. So I have extra table space next to me where I can keep books and notes, things of that nature. Okay. So is that your whale? Uh, I think it's going to have to be. All right. Keith, what's your whale? See, now this is difficult for me to play this game because there's confession time here. Not only am I a really, really, well, we'll use a polite word, frugal person, I hate spending money on me. If I needed an operation without which I would lose like both arms and both legs, but it was like near Christmas time and I had to buy presents for the family or something like that, I, I would be sitting there thinking, I really don't need both my arms. <laughs> <laughs> so if I really had to pin down anything that I buy that I don't really need is like, uh, I buy like the basic rule sets for games I know I will never play. I've got like uh, rifts sitting over there. I've got every I've got all the core books for every edition of D and D, but I've only played one and five. So I, I have books that I never read. But no, really, I make my own stuff almost almost entirely, and that's probably why I've gotten into doing you know freelance stuff. If I need you know if I need a map, I'll draw my own map. If I need uh, a prop, I'll get out cardboard and tape and I'll make a prop or something like that. So is there anything um, you've made for yourself that took an inordinate amount of time when compared yeah, to the other? Okay. There, well, that, that we can go with. Uh, okay. I did probably my favorite campaign ever. It was a science fiction campaign lasted about three or four years. And I wanted to go with like the J. Michael Straczynski model of uh, what we did with Babylon 5. I had an idea for the entire shape of the campaign and let the players kind of like direct how we got there. Broder's crying, just so you know. Uh, Babylon 5 is one of the best shows ever. It's so beautiful. <laughs> now, if only Keith could have done the art in the original Babylon Project book. Uh, <laughs> uh, actually, I mapped the whole station. Uh, I know, for, but the character uh, art. So, oh. was that, so was that your whale mapping oh, the entirety oh. of all five oh. miles or whatever, Babylon 5? No, I got paid for that. Uh, okay. No, this was, uh, this was for this particular game, uh, I wanted to run a, a first contact type scenario. Okay. Uh, so I built a puppet. I had already designed the alien creature. And then later on, I decided it would be really cool if they could interact with like a three-dimensional thing. 
So it's not like I build a puppet and then like built a biology around it and stuff like this. I'd already built this, you know, drawn this thing and I had all these reference documents and stuff. And so I thought, okay, I went I went to the the fabric store and I got the right color fur and I got, you know, things for compound eyes and I made little puppet rods so I could control his tiny little hands and stuff like that. And I had them do a first encounter type uh, scenario where they were exploring this, you know, alien spaceship in the dark and they only had a flashlight. So I turned all the lights out in the room. They only had like a little mag light that they could train on this puppet. And uh, yeah, I probably spent, uh, I don't know, 20 hours building that. And they had never seen your Muppet prior to that flashlight moment? No, no, it was great. It was like, okay, you know, you guys are in the dark. Okay, turn the lights out. It's like, are any of them in like PTSD counseling over this? (laughs) (laughs) No, no, like I said, that's probably the the time that I I mean, you didn't on a prop. So, okay, do you still have this thing? Uh, I have a feeling that it is downstairs somewhere. It, it might have uh, decayed somewhat. All right, because if you can find it, I want a video short of this thing, <laughs> and we're going to post this totally. Well, here, That's the coolest f***ing gaming story I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> this actually ties in to my very first assignment uh, that I did for you, Dan, in that the creature uh, had a lot of structural similarities to your Cyrene. Oh, and I'll, uh, I'll, I, I know I've got the files online somewhere. I'll send you a document. You'll say, oh, yeah, I can see where you came up with that idea and you know, the, the way the legs attach and things like right. that. Right. But, yeah, which would be complete happenstance because the Cyrene physiology was originally doodled out in, like, 1997 or 98. Yeah. When I was a uh, consultant at Charter, and they didn't have anything for me to do, so I just took a pad of paper, and I just started doodling out physiology and out of that came the serenity. And so, that would have been just about the same time I was coming up with, uh, with my career. Really? Too. So there might be some creepy, like weird, you know, okay. like dream walking thing going on here. Maybe we're both remembering a, a capture encounter of some kind. It could be, maybe they're real. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm going to sit up at night thinking about this. They're going to make a note to send you a link to that. All right. So if that puppet's still there, I want to see this. Joe, what's your will? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of drawing a blank like uh, like Keith was. I, I think the closest thing for me, uh, and I, I ended up buying it, was um, Marvel Masterpieces, the cards, uh, the comic book cards. Um, there was one particular year that was very rare, and on eBay they cost around $600. And eventually I was like, you know, I'm going to make all these creature cards, and the inspiration for them is the Marvel Masterpieces. And you know what? I'm I'm going to buy that set that, that I couldn't afford on my own if I couldn't come up with some lame excuse to get it. So, <laughs> so here's mine, and this isn't going to top any of you guys dollar wise, but it's just so freaking weird. So this thing starts floating around Facebook. This is a couple weeks ago, maybe, where there's some company that managed to get a hold of an actual lot of, and by lot I don't mean a lot. I mean lot is in like a, a shipment of or a box of actual recovered mammoth tusks. And they uh, crafted oh. them into a bunch of D20s. Yeah, I heard about that. What? And so I'm like, what the hell? Okay, first of all, this has to BS. And secondly, even if it's not BS, nobody needs this. So I contacted the company that was making or the group. I guess I don't know it was a company, but the group that's making them. And I'm like, all right, you're re- is this really Mammoth Tusk or is this some BS? And I know it really is Mammoth Tusk. They start walking me through you know, where they're getting them from and all this stuff. And, you know, I'm like, come on, nobody needs this. It's, it's freaking, it's a like a $250 D20, but it's made from a mammoth tusk. And then by the end of the conversation, I'm like, I totally need a mammoth tusk. <laughs> <laughs> and so now I have a, I'm waiting on them to get the next handful of tusks, but I'm going to have a tusk made from an actual, like, long, you know, dead mammoth, like, D20 thingy. And it's, what what is that Japanese thing where they break pottery and then they fix it with gold in their cracks? What is that called? Oh. I can't think what it's called. Once again, I'm doing this without Google. But they do something similar because, of course, these things are thousands of years old. And so there's a lot of imperfections in the ivory. And so they fill it with a particular, I don't know if it's an epoxy or what it is, but they have a way they fill it that creates these kind of marbled uh, striations or whatever throughout it. And like I said, it was this complete used car salesman thing. I walked in there like, you know, what is this? And I walked out of there with, (laughs) now I own one. So, all right. So I'm going to give you guys the last word like we always do on our interview episodes. Joe and or Keith, uh, go ahead, Brodor. I just wanted to ask. So 
if you're a retailer and you want to carry your product, how does that work? Do you uh, guys go through yes. normal distribution oh, channels? Yeah, we forgot Absolutely. to talk about that. Yes, that was one I actually stopped you on in pre-recording. We didn't come back to. So, Joe, you obviously make a lot of physical products. In fact, I mean, while some of these are digital products, I would assume the codes could still be sold in physical form on like a printed card or something like that. But certainly your other stuff, your card decks and such a physical product. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Are uh, yeah, you stop? Go ahead. Yeah, a number of the products are in distribution right now through Golden Distribution and through IPR, Indie Press Revolution. So we've got that, um, particularly with the dice, the cards that match the dice. And most of the encounter decks and creature decks are, are there right now, and, and the others will be there shortly. But it's been a pain to kind of get listed with uh, different uh, retailers. I mean, IPR being an exception where they, they actually did, you know, you drop them a note, showed them what the product was. They're like, yeah, we'd love to have it. And, you know, we arranged to ship them a number of copies and signed a contract. And that was pretty smooth. Um, with golden distribution, I had reached out to them uh, once or twice on my own previously. And then a, a year ago at Gen Con, you know, a year and a month ago at Gen Con, uh, one of their VPs happened to be walking the floor and looked at something and was like, oh, this is cool. We want to get. And so even with one of their VPs being impressed with the tool, with the, the dice in person, it still took six months to get into distribution with them. And, you know, I've reached out to three or four other distributors and, and haven't heard back from anybody else. Um, so we're happy to work with uh, retailers directly. And, um, and and otherwise, you can you can work with Golden Distribution or IPR. Yeah, I meant to ask you about that because in pre-recording, Brodor, of course, having you know managed the fantasy shop chain, mm-hmm. he was like, you know, outside of IPR, why haven't I seen these products? And I was like, that's a great show topic. Hold on to it. And then I almost just ran off without doing it. Well, and this probably won't make it onto the actual episode, but in my experience as a retailer, for your products to really get into the hands of a lot of stores, you almost, I don't want to say have to, but you're going to be more successful going through Alliance and or ACD. You know, yeah, those are going to be. I, you know, I've dropped them emails and, you know, I, I need I need to do it more often or I need to call or, you know, I've tried to reach out a couple of different times to each of them and, and haven't uh, haven't had any luck. Are you guys members of uh, of Gamma of the Game Manufacturers Association? No, no. Okay, because one of the things that I have seen be successful for game companies is actually getting retailers to contact their reps. Say, if I had a rep at ACD, I would call them up and say, "Hey, Chris, I saw this product. You need to um, carry it. I want you. I want to get it, and I want to get it from you guys because the consumer, a lot mm-hmm. of consumers, they want to vote with their dollar and support their local game store. Mm-hmm. So they don't necessarily. I know plenty of people do. Obviously, otherwise you wouldn't have a business. Plenty of people go online and buy direct online. But a lot of gamers, if they can see the product in their shop, they want to buy it from their local shop. Yeah, and to me, I mean, you know, these dice or these these cards are kind of the perfect extra add-on yeah. that you can get at the register, just have, have yeah. some uh, of them the, nearby. The, di- and- the dice are a no-brainer. I mean, if that's yeah. something that I would have had one, you know, when I was when I was still in retail, if that was something that I could have had at the counter with the broad variety of chess selection selection that we had, I know that that's something that we could have done very, very well with. Well, unless you specifically need that edited out, I'm going to leave it in the show because. Oh no, I I don't. I mean, hell, I don't for I don't work for Dave anymore, <laughs> so it's it's not. I think it's good advice because if there's anyone out there who's trying to get their games out there, if you've got friends at a local gaming store, right. get them to go to the distributors it, and say, hey. I want to give you my money for this and you're not carrying it. And I mean this quite seriously, even though even though I don't work for Dave anymore, I'm still trying to find a career in the game industry. And if people out there have products or they want advice about, hey, I want to get my product in front of retailers or I want to open a game store or I have game store questions, man, hit me up on the Fear the Boot forums. I'm happy, happy to help. Yeah, we need to an email address, too. All right. So to close out the show, the one the way we always do on our interviews, take two on this. <laughs> Joe and or Keith, do you guys have anything coming up here that you want to get people thinking about or get them looking toward? Is there any major product releases you want to talk about? Keith, you want to jump in first? Okay, I'll go first. I'll go first because mine's going to be relatively simple. Hire me. Uh, no. <laughs> I, uh, I'm sure that my uh, my website will be on the uh, the show notes for this. It's kacurtis.com. 
I do a little bit of everything, and uh, I'm easy to work with, and I get stuff done. Yeah, he does. <laughs> in fact, I, I ended up, I think, letting it expire. But for a while, I had purchased the domain getsdone.com and it redirected to Keith's website. I think I let that it expire. That is the best story and the best tip I ever got. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not kidding. If you do maps, then I, I want to look at your rates. And, yeah. Because I, I would love to. I've never run my own campaign setting before. So I would love to have a nice, I professionally will, done map. I will personally endorse Keith. He and I work together on a bunch of things. His rates have always been reasonable. He's always gotten his work done. It's always been done on time. It's always been up to par quality-wise. There's a very short list of artists that I would just endorse without reservation. And Keith is absolutely on that list. So, yeah. So if you're looking for any kind of artwork you want done, character portraits, work for your product that you're working on or gaming book or personal home setting, whatever it is. Yeah. KACurtis.com. And I'll put a link to that in the show note. Joe, what about well, you? And, and let me just follow up on that. I mean, Keith, yeah, Keith does great work and timely and everything, uh, everything you could possibly want. I mean, I, Keith will remember, I mean, back at the end of June, I'm in, I'm on vacation in Jamaica and I'm looking at, uh, at these, the, the third encounter deck in particular. I'm like, Boy, you know, I had an artist uh, uh, who was unemployed, and so they were working with me on making some maps, and then they got employed. <laughs> and so they weren't going to be able to turn around any of the maps. And I'm like, how am I going to get this done? Hey, Keith, uh, can you turn around about 20 maps for me over the next eight or nine days? <laughs> and Keith is just like, well, I'd say he's like right-click and done, but he uses a Mac. So it's like, like <laughs> open Apple, click and done or whatever. Uh, no, you- Been, we've been right clicking for 20 years. <laughs> so, so yeah, everything you said about uh, about Keith is seconded here. So, as far as what Inkwell Ideas has coming up uh, on the horizon, uh, you know, we're always updating all of our our software. Um, uh, it's hexographer, cityographer, dungeonographer, the coat of arms. There's there's new one new versions, updates, minor features maybe every three months or so for each of them. In addition to that, the card decks, you know, we are starting another NPC card deck in the near future. Um, Actually, we've started already, and and it'll be out in a few months. Uh, Same thing with probably another encounter deck in particular. In addition to that, uh, we're going to return. You were talking at the beginning about all the contests that you've got going on. Um, before uh, leading up to Gen Con, we were doing a contest on um, making your own uh, mini dungeon morph designs, and we had a number of contributors putting those out there on different uh, open licenses so you could use them. Um, and we're going to bring that back probably in about a week, and we'll start doing a, maybe a biweekly or every month. Where do people find out about this contest? Is that on Ink? So it'll be posted at Inkwell Ideas. It'll be on our mailing list, but probably the best place is our Inkwell Ideas blog. Um, that'll have it, have the announcement about it, as well as um, throughout the contest, we'll kind of, here's all the entries to date. And, and as we get closer, we kind of wrap it up and we say, okay, these are the last entries. And uh, then myself and, and another person or two will look them over and, and come up with a winner who will win a free set of our dice. So there's that. And then we also just recently uh, launched the Patreon. So Patreon is kind of, it's the new Kickstarter, I guess, if you will, uh, as far as uh, for different companies that want to do projects and, and want to um, get some funding for them. And so we're looking at using it to improve our software and to give us uh, more time to make improvements, but in exchange to give you more icons and more resources to use with the software. Uh, So the idea is with that, every month we would be putting out um, about 15 new icons for each of the four programs, and uh, you can pledge uh, $1.50, $2, $2, $3, $5, um, and uh, support that. Okay, and I will be sure to get a link to that in the show notes as well. So if you're interested in backing their Patreon and getting those icon updates, then you will find a link to that in the show notes. Joe and Keith, thank you very much for joining us. I appreciate you guys joining us on the show here tonight. Yeah, thank you for having us. It's, I, I want to uh, try to get into the Five Timers Club like Keith is. <laughs> oh, actually, I think this is uh, what, my third or fourth. I, I have no idea. I know it's more than second, less than 200. So somewhere. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's not enough. Yeah. Not enough. I, I don't know where exactly. But anyways, as always, Keith, it's great to talk to you again. As for you guys at home, have a great week and great games, and we will catch you next time. This has been a production of Fear the Boot, copyright 2015. 
You can find previous episodes and other resources at feartheboot.com. Fear the Boot is also a member of the Pulp Gamer Media Network of Shows. You can find other great shows in this network at pulpgamer.com. <laughs>